Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, how are you? Doing well, David. How are you? I'm good. And you are in our uh, Hell's Kitchen headquarters, staring eye to eye with the panelists instead of just being remote on the phone this week. And we have... Uh, I'm not in the room, so I'm just going to guess they're there. We have Jim Cooper, our boss, the editorial director of Adweek. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, David. How are you? I'm good. Uh, And we've got Christina Monlos, a staff writer covering brand marketing and a producer on the podcast. Christina, always great to have you. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this week, we've got some really fun stuff to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about the most shared tweet of all time, which was, of course, about chicken nuggets, as all great things are. Uh, we're going to talk about some big moves that Facebook's doing, that Oreo's doing, all sorts of brand stuff. Dove's new crazy bottle design, the best ads worth watching this week. And then we're going to talk about our media all-stars, which is our cover story this week in the magazine. And so, yeah, lots to talk about. But first, the news. <laughs> Guys, Carter got his nugs. The uh, tweet that went around the world getting uh, 3.4 million uh, retweets blowing away everything, including Ellen DeGeneres, the Samsung tweet, the selfie, uh, really surpassed everything. Random dude, random teenager who asked for, <laughs> asked for some a, a year's supply of chicken nuggets. Now I bet he wishes he had gone further, asked for like a lifetime supply. And uh, when, he, when he asked uh, Wendy's uh, what it would take to get a year's supply of free nuggets, they said 18 million retweets. And he said, consider it done. Uh, and then I, I, the brand probably assumed it would stop there. It did not. It uh, exploded well past 3 million, uh, eclipsed all other tweets in terms of shares and retweets. Everything political, everything branded, everything celebrity. He has dwarfed them all. Random, random guy. So uh, <laughs> this was today, the, uh, as we record this on Tuesday, uh, the brand awarded him his, uh, his year of free nuggets. Uh, they also uh, made a donation in his name to Dave Thomas's uh, adoption charity, uh, which I don't know is good intentions, but that felt a little weird that they made a donation in his name to kind of their own charity. Well, first of all, what is how many nuggets is a year's worth? Yeah, you know, that's... do we 
Do we have a number on this? Tim Nudd's asking the hard questions. Uh, or does he just go whenever he wants and he can he gets, he gets free McNuggets because they give him like a laminated card or something? Uh, you know that, that's a that's a good question. He's holding up a bunch of like uh, free pass tickets, so uh, yeah, we, I need to figure out exactly how much he gets for it. But I don't know. Did the charity thing strike anybody else weird, or is that just me? It's super weird, but also he didn't get to eighteen million. This is a lie. Everything's a lie. This is crap. <laughs> It's not a lie. It's a compromise, eh. right? Like, well, every, every, everything's an ad. Well, <laughs> it was. It was all. Now, if this had been meticulously planned from day one, then I would be disappointed that Wendy's didn't make it to uh, to eighteen million. But still, hey, three point four million. I remember seeing this thing when it only had like. Well, I mean, only only had a hundred thousand retweets or whatever, and I thought, oh, that's a pretty good turnout. But that guy's never going to come anywhere close. He didn't come close to eighteen million, but whew. Man, that's uh, three point. He's almost at three point five now, uh, and uh, and so I guess I'm just wondering: Do you guys think this is going to, uh, you know, fans, super fans of these brands are already kind of insufferable in, in a lot of ways about just demanding free stuff or demanding that celebrities follow them back? Is this kind of thing just going to make them more so? Yeah, I think so too. I don't know. I think uh, I'd be interested to know how long the person who was in charge of the Wendy's social account that day. Um, how long they spent coming up with the 18 million figure, probably like about a quarter of a second. You know, you look at Wendy's replies and there's like hundreds a day. It's just funny that this one kind of blew up. Although uh, these these food restaurants seem to be great at, at, at tweeting. We did the whole the whole Denny's thing a few weeks ago. It was really, really clever. So they, 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 they're very good at turning something that seems to be nothing into uh, something everybody talks about, which is sort of odd. Yeah, I mean, people are already extremely demanding with brands. When you think about how quickly brands reply and how often people are tweeting at them, and then, you know, people already expect free stuff. So now it's just like, all right, where's where are my free shoes? Where are my free burgers? Where are my free fries? Like, send it to my house via drone right now. And and, and Wendy's giving him his, uh, his nuggets for only a fraction of the retweets that he got. Opens the door to random uh, rampant abuse, I would say, of... Of, of brands. If they delivered his nuggets by a drone, that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. But I worry that people are going to forget that, like, social accounts for brands are run by people, you know? Well, that's what, you know, it's like whenever I see a, you know, or kind of a rising star and their their Instagram or their Twitter starts to blow up into these big numbers, and they always have this phase they go through where they're like, guys, please stop asking me to follow you back. Because <laughs> that's pretty much every single response is just follow me, follow me, follow me. I mean, it's got to be really just horrible to to run one of those feeds and actually try to use it. That's why these celebrities respond to almost nobody is because every response they're getting, uh, if you go through the replies on their threads, are horrible. Brands honestly have it a little better, but I don't know. It's probably going to get even worse for Wendy's right now. Wendy's, uh, to Tim's point about their rapid-fire response, uh, they had uh, one of my favorites this morning. Maybe it was late last night, but someone had posted a a, a picture of White Castles and tagged both Wendy's and White Castle and said, Hey, Wendy's, look at these beauties. I don't see Harold and Kumar going on an adventure to Wendy's. And uh, and Wendy's responded—or White Castle actually responded first and said, Drops Mike, which is kind of weak, but whatever. And then Wendy's responds back— True. People crave our food even when they're completely sober. <laughs> Some, someone is going to have to follow him and uh, his health profile in the coming year. How much weight is he going to gain? <laughs> yeah, that's going to be the, the, the vice deep dive a year from now. It's just like Wendy's Gabe Carter, his, th- his year of nugs. 
Here's what it did to him. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Well, that's enough nugget talk. But I threw that in at the last minute when I saw the news because, man, that's this brand news doesn't get any bigger than that. But is a close second is uh, some reports this week uh, and credit to Business Insider, which got a, a, a nice little tip off, assuming that their sources are accurate. Uh, they reported this week that uh, Facebook is preparing to launch its own original programming. So right now it's the new fronts when all these digital publishers go out and they try to convince all the advertisers to throw money at them. And it's it's usually the you know the ones you'd expect. It's Amazon and YouTube and all those players. And uh, Facebook is not in that mix, uh, certainly announcing any uh, original programming, but apparently is planning to roll some out in June, according to this report. And it's uh, it's scary for a lot of different uh, aspects of the industry, this idea, because Facebook has such a built-in captive audience. And if they launched their own original programming, they could really force it in front of just a, an insane number. I mean, a billion people all at once. Jim, what, you know, you've been you've been going to these new fronts. I mean, how and Facebook's been to the new fronts in the past, but this is a very different type of play that they're talking about. I mean, how how much do you think that would be a game changer and just rattle the rest of this kind of streaming video original programming industry? I mean, I think I think your point about the, their audience is well taken. It's a you know, billion plus eyeballs. So if if they can replicate a Netflix-like model, you're right. That show could be incredibly influential. But, you know, Facebook also really sort of is a utility at this point. Um, And they don't have a track record in in, in original programming, at least traditional original programming. Um, So we'll have to see. Um, But it was um, on the mind of a lot of people during the New Fronts for sure. I, you know, I I feel like Facebook does not have a great track record of going all in on something. Like if they're going to roll out something and they try rolling it all out at once, it tends to kind of come out on fire uh, and, and just piss off everybody. So this is the kind of thing where personally, I think they'd be better served just putting a toe in the water, you know, maybe launch one show, maybe roll it out. But it, but it sounds like that's, that's you know, again, if these reports are true, uh, that they may have a much bigger play coming. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to keep an eye on, but it will definitely highlight just the, you know, we've I think we even spoke on a recent podcast about the explosion of original content across the board and advertisers are putting more and more money into it. They used to say, oh, we only really care about, you know, original programming if it's on these traditional networks. And they kind of saw original programming on the digital video as, as you know, this that's ah, cute. You know, it's low budget. And that's obviously changed with Transparent on Amazon, you know, with uh, uh, Stranger Things and every other show coming out on Netflix. Not that you can buy ads against those, but kind of proving the model and uh, and Hulu now with, as we talked about last week, uh, with Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, but you can't necessarily, like, as Facebook, have Handmaid's Tale or have Transparent and just, like, put that in front of ev- every single person on Facebook because, you know, the shows that are actually interesting are dealing with human stories that have, you know, uh, are usually, like, not necessarily PG-13. And so, you can't, like, as Facebook, you can't be like... Okay, so we're going to roll out these live videos that are, you know, have issues and you'll see a bunch of crazy crap that, you know, is is really dangerous and we're going to have to employ 3000 people, but then at the same time be putting out a show, you know, emulating House of Cards and having that level of violence, you know, you you can't do both. Yeah, the the, the brand sa- safety issue is with be super real. And um, yeah, and that's that's another thing that was it's a huge topic during the upfront uh, fronts and new fronts. Um, you know, I think there's you're seeing a return back to 
TV because their sales proposition is that they have a safe environment as opposed to social. So you know, it, it could be a problem for Facebook. But I, I do think that if Facebook gets serious about video, um, they'll, they'll change the game and they'll change the business economics around that game as well. Well, it shall be interesting to to see uh, what they do. I, I definitely feel like it's a play that, uh, you know, original programming is certainly one of the biggest trends in the industry right now. I think Facebook would, on a level, be idiots not to pursue it. But I could also see them really botching it up in a lot of ways, too. So I guess we will find out soon. Uh, in more brand news, we've got Oreo is crowdsourcing new flavors. Uh, anyone who has walked through a grocery store in the last uh, year, two years, has noticed that, man, there is just a ridiculous number of Oreo flavors. Uh, first, I want to do a quick little survey. What, what Each of you, do you eat Oreos? And if so, like, what is your Oreo of choice? Uh, start with you, Nud. Uh, sure. I, li- I like Oreos. Yeah. I don't really go beyond the double stuff. I don't really get into, um, like the red velvets or anything like that. I'm more of a traditionalist when it comes to Oreos, uh, but I'm a fan. But, the, but definitely the double stuff, right? Double stuff is, uh, you know, exponentially better. I don't know if the math is right there, but then regulars. Uh, Jim, you're a healthy lifestyle kind of guy. Do you bypass the Oreos or, or are you a fan? No, the uh, Oreos are in heavy rotation in my household and it's not much really more about, how you eat the Oreo than the Oreo we buy. So we, we're pretty traditional, um, double stuff or traditional, but like there's a break in my household, stuffing first or filling first or cookie first. And it's uh, an ongoing debate. Well, what are you? That sounds like an ad campaign in the making. I, 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 I'm definitely um, the uh, cookie first. Interesting. Man, that's so, my, my, one of my kids does that. And I always just look at him like, like, where did you come from? Like what alien planet eats the cookie first? But good to know that he is among among such good people. You know, I feel like I feel like uh, all these weird uh, flavors really started out, like, overseas. Like, you know, you used to go on the Internet and there would be a page where it was like, check out these 75 weird Oreo flavors from Eastern Europe. And now I think U.S. Oreo is like, why don't we just, everyone loves that stuff, so why don't we just turn it into its own kind of marketing engine? I think that's what, kind of what's happened. Yeah, when I, I worked on a CPG account for food uh, in my agency life, and, you know, there were these kind of specific flavor combinations for different geographies. Like, they would always say that you, you know, in Hispanic areas in America, like in the Southwest or in Mexico, you would use citrus flavors and in or pineapple, you know, and in, these, and in America, you have to be very traditional, like chocolate and vanilla. And that was changing already by the time I, I kind of left the agency is you're just seeing that those those rigid kind of lines kind of cl- closing in and Oreo I think must have had good luck. I think the internet and social has really fueled that too because you can just honestly just see which ones really get traction. So the new one is one that personally sounds kind of disgusting to me. It's the firework Oreo that has basically pop rocks uh shoved in the cream. Uh you know, I <laughs> that just sounds like I don't know. I I don't like Pop Rocks because it gets you that like that weird sensation, like your brain is popping. You know what I mean? Like in the back of your. Have, do you guys, I think that's the whole eaten? point of Pop Rocks. Yeah, I just I'm I'm not a fan. I think kids would probably kids would probably enjoy them as a novelty. I bet. But I, I have I have seen that there's a lot of flavor explosion. I, I noticed that Pop Tarts has a whole new like huge like, fan of flavors, like ranging from like like cotton candy to cheeseburgers like i wonder what's behind this flavor thing i don't know there was even like an oreo churro thing for a little bit that was the only one where i was like all right if they could actually replicate the subway churros that we eat sometimes sure i will try this was it this year that they had the uh the only cream oreos 
as the uh, I think that <laughs> that was an April Fool's joke, but it was pretty close to the r- real thing. But no, the flavor explosion is great. I mean, as long as Oreo isn't going, you know, we're after you foodies. Like as long as Oreo isn't trying to say that it's for foodies, I'm fine with them. You know, doing as yeah, many like things the, as they the, want. The next one's gonna be like Koji, or it's gonna be uh, some kind of uh, I just I don't know what the, like the hottest food. Yeah, like some kind of hot foodie trend. I got a new mommy Oreo. I have to say, though, I feel like um, the golden age of Oreo advertising has kind of passed. You know, you think back to like um, 2012 when they had the Daily Twist. That was like the greatest uh, real-time marketing, you know, for 100 days to celebrate the 100th anniversary. They they mocked up some sort of current event of that day um, with using cookies somehow. And it was like one of those early, you know, you're still kind of early in the in the evolution of real-time marketing. And, man, that was so well done. It was The ideas were fun. The execution was great. And it really kind of set off what ended up being a couple of really great years for Oreo. You know, the, the very the following Super Bowl was the Dunk in the Dark tweet. And then you also had the Wonderfield campaign that launched a few months after that out of the Martin Agency. And you had about two years there where, where Oreo advertising was, like, so, so good. And... and it's not so good anymore, and I think they've well, replaced... Well, Dana's also out. Well, that's recent, yeah. That was two weeks ago. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like uh, lately the product innovation has taken, you know, ha- has been pushed to the front, and the, the advertising ideas have kind of been pushed to the back a little bit, which is an interesting evolution. And, you know, this whole Wonder Vault thing, all their ads lately are kind of built around the Wonder Vault, and the, the Wonder Vault is... Uh, you know, this fictitious sort of fanciful idea that this is where the new flavors come from, this, this, you know, this strange vault. And they did these sort of outdoor executions where, you know, the Wonder Vault was supposedly a real place and it was kind of in a storefront in, in New York and there was another one out in L.A. And so definitely the, the flavor innovation is what's driving the marketing these days. It's not really the advertising. Yeah, and I, I think Jim definitely makes a, a good point and it's something we should probably uh, do a whole story around, but it's just this... You know, I, I I think you are seeing more and more of these products really stretch themselves, ones that used to only have kind of for, for a long time only had three or four. And, and it comes and goes. I remember when uh, when oatmeal went through this phase in like the 80s and 90s where they rolled out like 85 different flavors of oatmeal. And then like, never mind, people just want cinnamon, and brown sugar, and they kind of scaled it back to three or four types. Uh, so I, I do think it comes in waves. But we will uh, keep close eye on that and see. But uh, you know, to the to the the point of the news here is they did roll out some new ads, uh, partly about this new firework Oreo, partly about uh, the fact they're doing a My Oreo Creation contest. So a, a bit like the My Lay's, com- I think that's what it was called the, for the Lay's design your own Lay's chips, which came up with some interesting ones. I think that was the one that created those. The- are always so gross. Yeah, they they did like the chicken and waffle, I think, and. Uh, Here's the weird thing about that, though. The the My Oreo creation is that consumers will get to pick the winner. And so this has all the earmarks of something that's going to easily be hacked. Like someone's going to come up with a horrible flavor, and it's going to get 18 million retweets, and it's going to become the new flavor, and Oreo's going to have to make it. It's going to be the the Bodie McBoat face of Oreo flavors. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Maybe that'll be the actual flavor, and they're going to have to figure out what that flavor is. (laughs) Yeah, don't let don't let Reddit get a hold of it. <laughs> Maybe McNuggets can can swoop in and get some new flavors for the nugs. Yes, <laughs> chocolate <laughs> chocolate nuggets. Um, 
All right. Uh, and uh, one of the more uh, controversial news items of the week was this idea of Dove uh, rolling out diverse bottle types to match diverse body types. Uh, Tim, do you want to walk us through what the concept here was and why it uh, kind of blew up in Dove's face? Uh, sure. So Ogilvy London, which actually was the, the office of Ogilvy that originally, way back when, in 2005 maybe or six, came up with the entire... Um, Real Beauty campaign for Dove. Um, and, you know, it's obviously been many, many iterations across many Ogilvy offices and beyond in, in the years since then, all sort of celebrating real beauty and 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 diverse body types and, and not, you know, uh, kind of rejecting the idea that, that beauty is, is only uh, one, you know, one particular physical form. And so what they did here uh, was, you know, they just took that idea and they transferred it over to the packaging. So, it was a silly, I thought it was kind of a fun idea, obviously kind of silly. Um, it got slammed in social, uh, all sorts of mocking reactions to it. And, and you know, I, I, get, I get that. We, we, in our review of it, we didn't really go um, too overboard. Uh, we didn't say it was great. We, you know, I, I, I thought it was kind of clever and kind of cute. Um, I think a lot of people kind of took the campaign Literally, like the bottles are meant to actually mirror your actual body type, um, and and they, you know, some of the criticism was like, I don't, I don't, I don't feel ashamed of my tall, slender bottle, and it was this, um, I don't know, I didn't think it was really supposed to be meant literally like that. I thought it was just kind of a clever gag that kind of reinforced this bird's eye uh, view brand message that different is good and that diversity is good, and this was sort of a fun way, packaging wise, to kind of hack that. Um, Christina, what did you think of this whole thing? I thought it was terrible. <laughs> I thought that they were doing something really dumb, uh, that it was kind of condescending, and that it would have made total sense if they made it for, like, an April Fool's joke, because then it could be, like, leaning into, like, how, you know... far-flung this whole campaign has gotten and how ridiculous it is so you thought Um, you saw it as like self-parody almost yeah it was it was i mean also like if you're going to do that if you're if you're going to you know be talking about diverse body types and you know really lean into this bottle thing which is it's just so dumb um but (laughs) you like you shouldn't only be rolling out white bottles like there should be a whole slew of different colors of the bottles. So would as that well. have made it better for you? No. <laughs> I, like, the whole thing is stupid, but if you're gonna do it, do it all the way. Um, I don't know. Just like the way that some brands at this point are talking to women, uh, just come on, man. Like I, I, I'm just buying this to like be like wash myself up. I don't, I don't need to be (laughs) thinking like that Dove is really appreciating me in this way with like even the bottle and, you know, they're being really careful, but just stop. Yeah. I mean, I guess the lesson is that like package design is not really a place to make a statement about body type. No. (laughs) I think it sort of takes the message a bit too far and brings it into like sort of this mundane place that it doesn't belong. Um, and in a slightly insulting way. It looks kind of cartoony. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little reductive. You know, it takes a very complex issue and and literally distills it down to these like pear shaped or apple shaped. You know, and uh, it, the it reminds me of kind of some of the ongoing criticism of the Dove campaign, which is that you know the idea is that real beauty comes from the inside, right? It is the supposed insight, but then so many of the ads revolve around, hey, you're not as ugly as you think you are. Like your butt's not as big as you think it is. You know what I mean? Like it always comes down to reaffirming. <laughs> 
like like let's have people tell you that you're actually prettier than you think instead of just saying you know it doesn't really matter I mean, uh, you know what I as mean? a woman, you know, I know that the only thing that matters about me is my physicality and Dove is really going to help me get to where I want to be. Like, come on, just <laughs> would, cool Wouldn't it. it help you if you just had someone else to tell you how good looking you are instead of just doubting yourself all the time? I mean, yeah, the I next know. thing is, it... is going to be like Dove releasing a mirror that's like, you know, the mirror, mirror on the wall shit where it's like, <laughs> you're okay. <laughs> you're you're the I mean, fairest of them all. I mean, they could have gotten just away with saying beauty on the inside and, and having the product speak for itself without trying to replicate body form. It's true. Not so. Not yeah, not I, think, so I think Jim's right. I, I think there's a lot of ways to convey, you know, that what matters is on the inside or that we're all different. There's a lot of ways to do that without being so literal on, on the body shapes, which is, you know, I saw a lot, a lot of tweets that were like, yeah, like I want to be reminded about my great big butt when I'm in the shower, you know, every time I pick up this bottle. <laughs> And, you know, again, that's I think that's only a specific complaint. But, man, the blowback on this one was uh, pretty intense. What, what, so so what, what was it like, David? I, haven't, I really didn't pay attention. The social pushback? Yeah. Yeah, it was mostly just people saying this is – I mean, okay, so take everything Christina just said and then multiply that by a, a few hundred tweets. And uh, that's been pretty much the reaction. Um, but, you know, it's just uh, – it, it is. It's kind of an underbaked idea, I guess, is, is it's a, a little too um, – it boils down, like I said, a very complex thing into something that's far too uh, simple. Well, and and I think that's why Ogilvy London probably went with it because it was it was um, very quickly – it was a, an arresting image and it was it was very simple. And most, aver- most, most great advertising ideas are simple like that. And so probably a little – I think they're learning that this was probably a little too simple and, and kind of ends up in the parody realm. I would love yeah. to see Unilever go to Axe and be like, yo, we're going to do the same thing for men's body types with Axe. Ready? And then the response will be just as bad and I will enjoy every moment of it. Dad bought Axe. That would be an awesome bottle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to definitely go for the uh, pear-shaped bottle. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's the news. And uh, now we're going to move on to my favorite part of the show each week where Tim recaps the ads worth watching. Tim, get ready. Here it comes. All right. Um, yeah, let's first talk about let's talk about Nike's Breaking 2 campaign because I really love this campaign. You know, this was an effort by Nike and Widening Kennedy. Obviously, these, this is a brand and an agency known for fantastic advertising for, for a quarter century or more. And what they did here was they, you know, they decided to look at real-world track record, uh, the, the two-hour marathon, which is, you know, the, I think the, the, the actual record going into this campaign, I think it was like 202.57. So they weren't even that close to the two-hour marathon. And so it was really kind of, they described it as a, as a moonshot. And it was this idea, you know, similar to, I guess, back in the 50s when they were trying to break the four-minute mile. Um, so Nike decided to kind of get invested in this idea that they could try to help break this, this barrier, this two-hour marathon barrier. And, you know, really what I love about this campaign is it, it's Nike really kind of following its own tagline. You know, just do it. It's not about talking to people. It's not about messaging. It's about actually going out and doing something in the real world. And so they got three runners. Uh, there was also great product integration in this. They got three elite runners. Uh, I think it was uh, Eliad uh, Kipchuj, who is a Kenyan runner, who actually ran the fastest of the three. Uh, there was an Ethiopian runner and an Eritrean runner also. And they got the three of them to, you know, line up at the at the start of this of this course in in Italy. I believe it was outside Milan. 
And they had, you know, they had these new uh, Nike Zoom Vaporfly Elite shoes. Uh, you know, the product integration here was really awesome. They, they were very lightweight and resilient. They had a, some kind of carbon fiber plating. Um, you know, Nike thought about this all the way down to, like, the weather and, the, and what the track should be like. And, you know, I just thought it was one of those things that kind of called to mind to me uh, the, the, the Red Bull Stratus stunt where you kind of take – the, you know the limits of human achievement, and, and can we can we be better? Can we do? Can we go past those limits? And you know, breaking a, a two-hour marathon, uh, like jumping from from you know inner space, or breaking the four-hour, uh, sorry, the four-minute mile. It's just one of those you know, it's one of those human things that that it's great for a brand to kind of try to get involved. And and uh, I think it got it got a ton of play. I think. Um, I think Kipchoge ended up running the marathon in two hours and 23 seconds. So he was only 23 seconds off. So he, he, he I think he took about two and a half minutes off the, the record time. I don't think it's going to actually count as a world record because um, there are rules about um, if you have a pace car next to you for a lot of the race. I think there's basically a pace car next to these guys for the entire race, so they know exactly how fast they had to run. So I think that's against the rules for a, for an actual world record. But he did actually run the course in in two hours and twenty three seconds, which is pretty insane. And you know, I mean, if you're Nike, you're the you're obviously the biggest sports brand in the world. You're a running brand first. You know, you go back to nineteen eighty eight, the very first Just Do It commercial that aired on TV was uh, the eighty year old guy Walt Stack who who ran seventeen miles every morning, and, and that was a real story. And this was a real story. And it, it just you know it puts Nike in the position of you know, we're not, we're not just going to tell you what we stand for. We're going to show you what we stand for, and, and we can inspire you. And you know, I just love this idea. I think it got it got a ton of play in social. It was they had a, a live stream of the race all over social media. It happened, I believe, late Friday night East Coast time. I think it was early Saturday morning uh, over in Italy. So people who were up late uh, on, on the East Coast were actually watching this, and it just had this mystique built into it. And great product integration and just a, a perfect example of, of a brand thinking really big. I just love the whole thing. Okay. If you were that guy who got two hours, you shaved two minutes off of it, and you weren't going to be counted for the world record because you basically did this for a brand, wouldn't you be so pissed? I'd be so pissed. Like, <laughs> you're so close. I mean, I think runners don't get a huge amount of attention anyway, and so this guy's probably loving the amount of attention this got. He, you know, he ran the half marathon last year in a record time, which was, I think, 59.27 or something. So basically, I mean, I love the, the teasers for, for breaking two because... You know, it said, hey, this guy ran a 59-27 half marathon last year. Now all he has to do is run it twice. <laughs> it was just really well, I mean, it was, it was an epic thing, and it, was, and it was marketed in kind of a fun way. And, you know, it, it just, it was a, brand, a, a great brand story and also a great product story. And I just thought, uh, you know, it was uh, similar to the, the Red Bull thing. I just thought it was, you know, larger than life and just a, a really inspiring thing to, to see. I think Nike's always done an amazing job of, I don't want to be that guy running that uh, two-hour marathon, but I certainly want to get off my butt and do something. And it's uh, they've always been really good about sort of tapping into that aspirational thing, shake off your stupor, go out, move. You know, and uh, I definitely thought this ad was super inspiring. Yeah, the, the, the level of ambition with this ad is what tre- tremendously impressed me is just – 
this thing had like a 99% chance of failure and, and it did fail. You know, they didn't break the, the, the mark, but they really didn't seem to hinge any of their, uh, you, you know, they didn't, they didn't kind of pull themselves back because of that. They, they didn't hedge it. Uh, you know, I've seen campaigns. There was one uh, for a, a brewer during the Olympics who basically this guy had set the pole vault, uh, I'm sorry, the long jump record, I think, uh, decades ago, and he's still alive. And he was saying, uh, you know, hey, uh, I'm waiting for someone to beat my record and I'll buy them a beer if they do. And then they had a countdown clock running until uh, until the event actually came around in the Olympics. And so, you you know, but they had a plan A, plan B, right? Like if no one wins it, no harm, no foul, they still get to they had an ad ready to go and no one broke his record and it got to keep going. That that was a clever idea, but it was still very safe compared to this, which is just like you're, you're going all in. You're spending a ton of money. Uh, and there, it is very tremendously likely, as we point out in the story by Angela Natividad, that uh, that Adidas will end up breaking this record. You know, they are. It's a bit of a space race here, where they are up against Nike, and they are really doing a lot to uh, kind of ensure that theirs has uh, more success. That said, to Adidas's credit, they did uh, congratulate Nike. They did congratulate the runners. Uh, they were, you know, good sportsmen uh, in that sense. Uh, and so it was a it was a fascinating kind of brand, uh, you know, collision on there that that went well for once in an era where brands mostly just snipe at each other like uh, Wendy's. Um, so, Tim, uh, tell us what else you uh, enjoyed this week. Well, so it'll it'll give you an idea of the kind of range that Wyden and Kennedy has that that they did uh, Nike breaking two and the the second campaign they also made, which was that uh, they they wrote a romance novel for KFC. Uh, ghostwritten, uh, I, I think it's Colonel Sanders. David, you, you should really talk about this one because um, not only did you write about it for for Adweek, but you read this uh, romance novel, uh, novella. So why don't you take this one away? Yes, I did. Uh, so this was, um, as you say, it was a romance novel. Apparently Mother's Day is the number one day for KFC all year, which I, I won't pass judgment on, man, whatever whatever you want to do on your Mother's Day. Uh, but because of that, they, as a part of this stunt uh, behind Mother's Day this year, they created a real romance novel. I honestly, I think like a lot of people, went into it expecting it to be parody, uh, to be a joke. Uh, you know, lots of jokes about Colonel Sanders being a leg man or a thigh man or whatever. But uh, nope, you know, it is a it is a 100 percent legit uh, romance novel. And it's just kind of coincidentally stars. I don't know why they said it was written by Colonel Sanders, because he's also the main character. And so it's a little awkward. And he's been dead for a few decades. <laughs> but setting setting those things aside, um, it's uh it's it, it was an interesting read. So it only takes about an hour. It's called uh, 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 I think on the tender on the the tender wings of desire uh, is the name <laughs> of the book. Uh, it was it was ghost written. They tapped a woman who had written uh, one kind of uh, I think supernatural romance thriller kind of a book. Uh, she's actually a copywriter for like Bed Bath and Beyond and a few other brands. Uh, she used to be a writer for Bustle. Uh, so they she she ghost wrote it under the. Um, uh, under the Colonel Sanders name, uh, but uh, but I think to really get the flavor of it, um, we, uh, so we we you need to you need to hear <laughs> you need to uh, hear uh, what it sounds like. So uh, because 
I didn't feel I could really do justice to reading uh, from uh, you know, from this romance novel in all of its glory. We asked, uh, as any podcast would, our uh, our friend Scott Monty, uh, who used to be the head of social for Ford Motor Company, one of the most respected men in digital marketing. Uh, he is currently CEO uh, at Brain and Trust Partners, and he has one of the best voices I've ever heard in my life. So we asked Scott to read a portion of the of the novella. And uh, Scott was a good spirit, and he went along with it. So let's hear his read of this. And may I just say, this is questionably safe for work, but, you know, here you go. To call their affair passionate was an understatement. Sometimes it seemed as though the two of them had been made to love each other, and they tried to do so at every opportunity. Their eyes would meet the instant he walked into the tavern, as if they could feel each other. In that instant, a spark would light and quickly grow into a raging inferno deep within them. They were so consumed that it took every ounce of their restraint not to give in to the fire right then and there. The flames would continue to rage throughout the night until the fire was too much. And at last, they could let it engulf them. So, David, you you read it and you thought it was really good. This novel, yeah. I mean, I I, I am not an aficionado of of. Uh... Romantic fiction. Uh, my sister questioned my my ability since she's read like hundreds of these things, and she's like, "I don't know if you really have the chops to review this." But I will say this: it's well written. Uh, it is. It never winks. You know, there's never any uh, joke in there. He never like makes chicken. Uh, there is a big reveal at risk of a spoiler that he's not he's not the simple sailor that. <laughs> <laughs> that everyone thinks he is living, you know, he's like escaped his past and he's living in Britain, I think, where, you know. He's, wait, and, uh, wait, is this one of those novels where it's like, oops, this woman has fallen in love with a man who, you know, has more means than she initially thought. And he really knows that she's into him because she loved him when she didn't know about his money. Is it that? <sighs> yeah, maybe. Oh. I mean, she, she she comes from money too, though. Oh, okay. So, you know, All right. She, Equal she, footing. She is a she's a lady who fled her life of of uh, riches and and boring marriage to you know on the eve of her wedding or whatever to go discover adventure and she she finds out he's secretly a colonel. So even though there's <laughs> no wink in the book, it's still a joke, right? Yeah, I mean, the, where you really see the joke is on the cover, because the cover, uh, not to be one of those people, is is not accurate. This is not an accurate cover. The cover shows, shows Colonel Sanders as we think of him, except that he's got these, like, ripped arms. His sleeves are torn off. He's got massive biceps and triceps. And he's holding, like, a modern-day mom with the, her car keys hanging out of her purse, uh, which is, is does not fit with the time period, does not fit with the age of Colonel Sanders. But it does really play up the complete joke of the whole of the whole thing. Uh, but, you know, you have to appreciate something like that that just doesn't, uh, you know, that doesn't go where you think it's going to go, that they actually delivered a real product. And uh, reminds me know, of uh, new- reminds me of when Fabio visited the Adweek offices down at uh, 770 Broadway. 
I think he might have actually ago. picked some staffers up too. He did. He picked up uh, Manuela Oprea for sure. Wait, who? Fabio. But who did he pick up? Well, uh, our photo editor at the time, um, who was a very small woman, and she was very pleased to be picked up by Fabio. But it was sort exactly. of like trying to uh, replicate the the bodice ripper cover with that, which that absolutely is. So. Did he have the hair? Like he's oh, yeah. never cut his hair, right? Oh yeah, no, he had long hair. He was he was Fabio. I mean, it was you know. It's the source of his strength. You know, if they cut cut off his hair, he'll lose all of his powers. He was a very friendly guy, as I recall too. And he just walks through, and everyone's just starstruck by the guy. He was pretty down to earth. All right. Well, that's enough erotic, uh, erotic fried fiction. Uh, Tim, what's your third ad of the week? So I wanted to talk briefly about the Pereira and Odell campaign for Fifth Third Bank. And, you know, Fifth Third Bank, anyone who, d- who doesn't bank there or is not that familiar with it obviously has a good laugh about the name at first. And so what Pereira and Odell did is they kind of riffed on the name and how silly the name is. And they did this whole campaign, which uh, it was really a good campaign. Christina wrote about it. She could probably talk about it a little bit. Um, they kind of made this joke of, of what fifth third is and, and how, how you can be a fifth third better than, than other, another bank. And, and the whole 5-3 thing kind of goes through the whole campaign. It was actually launched on May 3rd. So they kind of really leaned into the, the goofiness of the name. And uh, before maybe Christina could talk about it, maybe we'll play a clip first, and then Chris, Christina could tell us what she thought of it. Take a look at our name. Five-thirds is actually 166.7%. So, according to the laws of mathematics, we are obligated to put 166.7% into everything we do. From our great customer service to our state-of-the-art security solutions, like fraud alerts, to protect you and your money to providing access to more than 45,000 fee-free ATMs nationwide. Now that's what I call ATMazing. So yeah, I mean, this this campaign was kind of cool in that, you know, the camera work it was it just kind of kept moving like you were moving from room to room to room and you were following these people around and then also at the same time it's like trying to tell you that this is a digitally savvy um bank for you to be using but then you know they have like chalkboards and you know old school calculators it all felt very um I don't know there's there's something to be said about you know marketing that's able to use analog and digital and do that in a seamless way where it feels right you know it also kind of felt like they were actually going after Gen X and not necessarily as millennial focused as you would assume because the people in the ad seemed they were like they were like mid 30s. I don't know. I liked that because it's so rare to see an ad that'll actually not necessarily wink at millennials. Totally. They were really well made and and I just like the the focus on the on the silly name and you know, when you have a silly name like that, it can be a point of, of difference and, and people can remember you. And um, design-wise, I thought the ads looked really great. And, you know, Prayer and Odell does great work uh, a lot of the time. And, and this was a, a pleasant surprise. It's not often that I get a, a pitch for a bank campaign. In, in, and uh, actually, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised by, by what I end up seeing. So nice job. Nice job on this one. I always uh, I always assumed Fifth Third was some kind of financial term and that that's where it had come out of. Uh, and then uh, at some point I found out that it's just that two banks called Fifth National and Third National <laughs> merged and became Fifth Third. 
I mean, and that's clearly that's they're not going to get boring. super into, you know, renaming themselves. Just mash them together. So, so fifth and third national don't merge into eighth national, at least. So that's that would have been silly. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Tim, as always, for rounding up the uh, most interesting ads worth watching. Uh, definitely check out the creativity section and the brand marketing section of adweek.com, uh, where he uh keeps track of those every day and we got a lot more coverage but it's time to move on to our big discussion of the week uh, which this week is going to be our media all-stars all right so every year we uh, count down some of the uh, most innovative media all-stars in the media industry the planning buying strategy uh, Jim uh, you have been covering media longer than uh, than all of us and have uh, you know really know this industry and have watched it evolve in a lot of interesting ways uh, tell us what well first off just what do we try to honor with this list each year what are we looking for in our in our honorees yeah I mean I think that this is uh, one of our longest running um, awards franchises. Um, it started out as part of uh, our sister, older sister publication, uh, Media Week, and we onboarded onto Ad Week about seven years ago, but we, we've kept it up. And uh, yeah, agency, agency business right now is in a really interesting inflection point. Um, I think that maybe in the past two years, this list wasn't as interesting as it is today, just because the industry was so caught up with the, like the fetish and disruption of digital technology. They just weren't doing interesting work. They were sort of sort of in a stupor. Uh, and I think we're seeing this uh, great sort of emergence from that stupor uh, and fetish uh, with technology. And these agencies are back to doing really sort of interesting work. Um, but a lot of it's based on data and how they're using data science to tell more meaningful stories for clients. Um, and that certainly is the case with our um, executive of the year, who's uh, Scott Hagerdorn, who's the CEO of Hearts and Sciences. Um, they're a really a, barely a year old, and they've already won these sort of two massive media accounts in P&G and AT&T. Um, they've grown to almost 900 people uh, and are having revenues of about $119 million, uh, and that's that is an incredibly uh, fast scale, um, and they did it because they really put data science up the marketing uh, funnel uh, and really incorporated it into the client discussions almost from the get go, and that really resonated with those two gigantic advertisers. Um, so that's a big hallmark, and I think uh, the way agencies are going to structure themselves going forward, and that Hagedorn and company over at Hearts and Sciences are. Are sort of at the very vanguard of this trend, um, and then the uh, on the opposite side you have um, just good old smart strategy. Uh, Natalie Kahn, who is our rising star, uh, who's associate director of strategy at Giant Spoon, um, she did the marketing uh, behind the NBCU freshman hit "This Is Us," and she uh, used uh, some data science, but also some old school stuff and focus groups. And uh, really tapped into this um, very simple item that people just wanted to have somebody to root for, uh, someone that they were that they were, was relatable, and uh, they found that in this in this series. And then she did the marketing based largely on that. Uh, so uh, it's pretty impressive. So those are two really good examples of media agencies, sort of again thinking creatively with with you know sort of these new capabilities they have and then pushing through to um, do interesting things that are largely database um, 
for their clients. And th I guess that would be the, the central hallmark of this year's crop of 15 winners, um, that there's a lot of science blended in with uh, the human capability of media buying and planning. I wonder if Natalie um, and Giant Spoon communicated to NBCU at all that, you know, that they wanted some, like that they were hearing that people wanted someone to root for because, you know, the marketing for the show started um, before the show was on air. You know, they had more episodes to write. I wonder if any of the creators heard heard back from her. And I'm, I'm, sh I'm almost positive that she would have communicated that back to uh, NBC. I mean, it's, it's, it's her responsibility to her client. Um, and I think that any of the early marketing that you saw was definitely sort of led with the fact that these are going to be very real people with real problems and you're going to want to sort of watch their lives unfold and, again, have somebody to pull for. It feels like a few years ago there was this, uh, it, maybe it's just anecdotally with me, but it started to feel like the media agency uh, model was most likely to kind of suffer from automation. You know, the, 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 this combination of programmatic and, and uh, you know, marketing cloud software and basically everything moving into this you know, we don't just have one spreadsheet for our media allocation every year. We we adapt in real time and we follow the trends. And I remember thinking like, ah, at some point, do you even need humans kind of figuring out your media mix if you can just plug all this into a, into a computer? And then, of course, in the last few months, especially, we've really seen the downside of that. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of the pushback on uh, ads running against uh, objectionable content. Uh, you know, the politicized content and uh, sites like Breitbart really uh, kind of inflaming people. And if you're just a computer who, you know, just looks at numbers and says, oh, OK, we're getting the most engagement over here. And then you kind of need a human to step in and say, like, ah, that's actually like a white nationalist website or that's actually, a, you know, a really vile like terrorist recruitment video or something that it really kind of highlighted the importance of having not just human media strategists, but also the importance of for for media folks of operating in real time and not just kind of, again, working from this one plan that's supposed to last you all season or all year. I mean, what have you seen that do to kind of the the, the daily life and the, the what's stressing out or what's uh, rewarding for people in that industry, Jim? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there was a lot of hand-wringing with programmatic uh, that, that's sort of gone away. And I think that they're these people are growing into a more consultative role uh, with clients. Uh, they they have all this uh, like sort of automation and data at at their at their fingertips. They have all this capability, but they also uh, know how to sort of touch the consumer. They have that as part of the DNA of a lot of these agencies. And again, I think a lot of this work that's been successful that we highlighted in this issue uh, shows how you can sort of take all this science. This you know programmatic, this data, this technology, and harness it in a way uh, that you can then twin it with um, sort of human insight and do actually some really interesting and also effective media media planning and buying. Um, that's exactly what uh, Lynn Lewis. Um, she's the president and global CMO of UM. I wrote about her for this. Um, that's kind of exactly what she was saying because they've you know with J three what the agency for J&J, &J, I mean, they've been able to, like, take this data-driven um, solution that they figured out for J&J &J and essentially, like, win a bunch of business based on that data um, and and that model. So I, I think you're right in that we're going to be seeing more of that, but also, you know, you still need people <laughs> behind the wheel. Yeah, I think that the data is going to get a lot lighter. I mean, there was a great quote uh, from Hagedorn in his profile 
you have to be light on your feet with your data sets. And I think these things are going to be much more portable. You can drop them in again, again, into the marketing funnel at, at very different and uh, earlier stages than they've been ever been dropped in before. And I think you, you can see insight faster and more thoroughly uh, now than you than say maybe even two years ago. So, uh, Tim, did any of the names or companies on here jump out at you from uh, from the creative side that you've been covering? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking a little bit here about the the human touch. I think the the human touch is integral. You know, you can only data will only take you so far. And I think the I think the perfect example of that is what Kinetic has been doing over the years. We recognized Liliana Caro, the global CMO at Kinetic, on this list, and. You know, Kinetic is one of those media agencies that has such a creative spirit behind it. And, and what's really interesting is they do so much out-of-home work uh, that, that's really creative. You know, the uh, the profile that, that we did for this issue, uh, which Robert Clara did, talked about their, their Green Day uh, uh, execution over in Germany, uh, where they, you could, you know, if you're walking by, by these billboards, you could sort of scan you know, the image of a boombox on, on your cell phone via the CEE app, and, and it sort of downloaded uh, this. I, I didn't actually download, but it was like the slot machine game came up, and that's just a small example of something that Kinetic does all the time. They do fantastic work, uh, interactive work with, with, with outdoor uh, executions. You know, I remember the one thing they did with Groupon a couple of years ago that was pretty hilarious. They... Um, they put a, a Groupon up on online where you could you could rent a, a, a 16 by 12 foot jumbotron and they would wheel it up to your house if you wanted to propose to your girlfriend. So you could propose on the jumbotron just at your house and not at the stadium. That's the kind of thing where you know it's just such, such a delightful use of media. And yeah, I mean we've we've talked a lot about how data is really overtaken this industry over the last 10 years and. I think it's the, the you know the executions that are most delightful to, to real people beyond the mass targeting element of data is are the ones that do have that human touch. I think Kinetic excels at that, and I was I was you know excited to see Liliana on this list. I, I I do feel like now is a really exciting time where you know for a long time creative and media were just so split, and I really don't think one can exist without the other. You know, in the same way that digital and the numbers the data side is so integral to media now, I feel like creative is just much more open to factoring in media from the beginning. I was talking to a copywriter at YNR uh, who worked on the Colgate Snapchat ad where you um you it the ad is upside down and it and you turn the ad uh, on Snapchat and it tells you, you know, if you if you turn your faucet off, you'll save X many gallons of water. And so it's that motion of turning the the phone over is supposed to be like, you know, turning your uh, your faucet off. And he said that 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 idea came out of a conversation of, oh, maybe we could do an outdoor thing where you literally turn the ad upside down with a with a dial or you know what I mean? It's like they talked about where can we bring this. Um, this creative idea to life in media and it ended up being Snapchat made the most sense because it won't rotate when you turn the phone over. That's a simple example, but I think that's one where it just kind of shows that that creatives really are factoring in media from day one and that they really have to have media agencies and partners and other departments that they can trust. Uh, you know, Jim, you've been going to the New Fronts uh, and uh, observing it this year. This is obviously where uh, all these major digital players come out and try to pitch advertisers. And I was, as I was saying before, it, it feels like they've always been a bit of the the second tier after the compared to the the upfronts, which is you know the big pitches for the TV networks. But now it feels, I, I don't, to me, it feels a lot more even. Like that, that media really does have to be a lot more agnostic in in where they give their preference. What are you sensing? Um, 
I'm, yeah, I, I think that's probably true. I think there's certainly a, a shift. Um, I will say the brand safety thing was a, was a pretty common theme. And the, there's a little bit of concern that there'd be a retreat to tr- traditional television and the safety that Haven provides. Um, but I do, I do think that people are looking to things like the Bloomberg Twitter uh, partnership as something that is, is very real and something that has a, a lot of potential to grow. Um, and there's a ton of great content. I mean, the Hulu, the Hulu I mean, you'd be hard pressed to go to the Hulu um, new front and not have it be like apples to apples comparison to what we're going to see during the broadcast uh, weeks. So um, a lot of great stuff, a um, little bit of concern about brand safety, but I, I will say that buyers seemed to be really into the new fronts. I mean, there were some, there, there's some networks and companies that sort of drifted away, but I will say that every new front that I walked into was jammed with media buyers and planners and brands. So there was a lot of excitement around things. Um, I, I would say just that, again, that brand safety thing was the one thing that was sort of uh, you know, a point of concern. Well, I would uh, definitely recommend everyone check out our uh, our list of the media all-stars for this year. There are 15 of them, so we don't have time to walk through all of them, but uh, we've hit a few of the highlights. And uh, just if you look for uh, the media all-stars uh, and Adweek, you will find it. Uh, and uh, definitely take a look at those. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for joining us to talk about that. It's always great, and we, we will have to have you back uh, soon. Uh, so thanks for thanks for coming out this week. My pleasure, David. Anytime. Well, uh, don't forget that you can drop us an email at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. Uh, our theme music is by Home. And this uh, week's episode was produced by Christina Mamos, uh, who's also a guest on the show this week. Thank you, Christina. And uh, we've got a lot more coming up in the coming weeks. Got our graduate's guide to marketing and media. Uh, we've got uh, can coming up very soon. We uh, all, all sorts of more coverage. So keep an eye out for Adweek Magazine and on adweek.com. And uh, we will uh, talk to you next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.